So, why don't you go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 16 with me. Acts chapter 16, we're in verses 19 through 14 this morning. Maybe you are familiar with some of these idioms I'm going to share with you. You've probably all heard the idiom, no good deed goes unpunished. It refers to getting punished for doing a good deed, obviously. Doing something good and the reward you get is less than stellar. So no good deed goes unpunished. What about this one? This one comes right from the scriptures. It's kind of a paraphrase, but God works all things together for good. What does that mean? Well, God can take any circumstance, any situation, and he can work it together for his good and ultimately ours. This one, some of you kids might not be familiar with. The chickens have come home to roost. Anybody familiar with that one? Any of you kids know what that means? No? But that basically means it refers to an embarrassing situation or an inappropriate behavior, something that you do, which ultimately results in future problems. Meaning, it's kind of another way of saying actions have consequences. And I don't know how, maybe, maybe you guys who have chickens can explain that to me, how the whole idea of chickens coming home to roost, what that... I mean, a lot of times you can figure out the idioms and know why they're used the way... I don't know where that... I mean, maybe a farmer knows, maybe the Ramirez's know because they have chickens. Is that... How that means, you know, brings your consequences back to you, I'm not really sure, but... Um, the reason I bring these consequences up is we're going to see each of these in our passage today. In uh, the first few verses, we're going to see Paul and Silas punished for actually doing a good deed. They Remember last week, they delivered a young woman from demon possession, and in their case, their good deed does not go unpunished. In verses 25 through 34, we're going to see God use Paul and Silas' imprisonment, a terrible situation, for good. So it meets our second idiom, which is God works all things together for good. And then the last instance, this idea of the chickens coming home to roost and there being consequences for actions, in verses 35 through 40, we're going to actually see the city officials who basically arrested, beat um, Paul and Silas, they're going to see their consequences kind of come back. Their consequences were unlawful. What they did was not right. And it does come back in some respects to bite them. So we're going to see all of those in our passages today. We're going to start with the first one. We're going to look at verses 19 through 26 of chapter 16. We're going to see that Paul and Silas are imprisoned for delivering a young demon-possessed woman, and they ultimately pay some consequences for it. If you remember in our passage from last week, there was this young slave girl who was basically fortune-telling for some rich masters, if you will, And she was following Paul and Silas and crying out um, about them and about the God that they were representing. If you go back uh, to verses 16 through 18 with me of chapter 16, I'm just going to read that briefly. It happened that there were, as they were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit and fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you a way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed, and he turned and he said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. 
And it came out that very moment. We talked about that last week and how what she was likely doing was a distraction. And there's different ways that different um, scholars interpret her words and what she was doing. Some say that she was basically trying to associate their God, Yahweh, with other Greek gods, and he was simply one of many gods, and he was kind of like a chief god like Zeus. Others say, no, the Jews would have understood that these, this demon was referring to Yahweh, but that it was just a distraction. And I've shared, that's probably my conviction on this. You know, if, if somebody in here were, every Sunday morning as we preached, were shouting and yelling and all that, it can become a distraction. And sometimes Satan will do those kind of things. He'll use the truth to distract, which is rather strange, isn't it? But he can do that. So either way we interpret this, it was a distraction of some kind, and so Paul does a good, righteous thing and relieves this woman of her oppression. Today we learn that their reward for doing that was to be beaten and thrown into prison. As they say, how do you like them apples? Look at verses 19 through 24. We're going to read a chunk there. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept and to observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows and threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely, and he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fashioned their feet in the stocks. Well, our masters obviously weren't happy because their source of income is now gone. We talked about how she was being abused by not just the demon, but by her masters who were sucking the life out of this poor young woman and taking advantage of her, much like we would think of human trafficking today. They're making money off of her by abusing her. And so they're not happy because they lost their source of income. And it's interesting with these individuals because they don't really have a legitimate claim against Paul and Silas. So they offer up some false accusations, which we've seen throughout the book of Acts. We saw it during Jesus' ministry. Basically, it says that they dragged them before the authorities and they made these claims. One, they were throwing the city into confusion. They also claimed that they were teaching things, these Jews were teaching things that were opposed to Roman law and things that the Roman citizens couldn't do. There might be some truth to that in the sense that they were proclaiming Jesus Christ, but there was nothing in Christian theology or practice that violated Roman law. And so these are false accusations that they made against Paul and Silas. And we know the real reason behind it, don't we? It's really just about their own prophets. They're going to manipulate the system. They're going to bring charges. We've seen that in our own culture and society, especially with the LGBT movement and how many have targeted businesses that are owned by Christians, knowing darn well that that owner is not going to want to serve whatever it is they want served, take a picture of my gay wedding or make a cake to celebrate my coming out or whatever it is. They know these people aren't going to do that. And they know they can go anywhere else to have a cake made or pictures taken or a wedding performed. But what do they do? They go right at that. They take advantage of the system. Oh, there's a law we have in the city. You can't discriminate. 
And so that's what they do. And that's what you see here. So here Paul and Silas' good deed is met with punishment. Even without conducting a trial, the authorities order them to be beaten, it says, thrown into prison, and then their feet secured in some wooden stocks. Now think about this. How would you respond if you were in their shoes? Would you be upset about it? Would you be angry? Would you be bitter? How would you feel towards God? Would you question him on this? How could you do this to me, Lord? I'm just trying to serve you. Well, look at how Paul and Silas respond. I almost brought a picture today. I actually had a picture. We know where this prison was. It still exists to this day. It's not being used. But you could see where Paul and Silas actually were, and it was not a happy place to be. But look at Paul and Silas here and how they respond. Verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So think about this. Just imagine this. They had just been beaten. The text tells us beaten with many blows. I remember quite a few years back, there was a American citizen who was arrested for something, and I'm thinking one of the Asian countries, Indonesia, or another place where they do caning. And they publicly cane people. It's a brutal, brutal torture form of punishment. It breaks the skin and, and other things. And that's actually what's happening here is they were caning Paul and Silas with many blows, it says. So we know that they were bloodied and bruised, Back verse 33, you don't have to look at, look at it, but indicates that there might have been open wounds that had to be treated. Their feet were locked in these wooden stocks. Typically they were on the floor. And so they lock your feet in, which means now you can't do much. And depending on where they put the stocks, you might not have even been able to lay down appropriately. And so here you are, beaten, bloodied, bruised, feet locked in these stocks. You can't even find a comfortable place to lay in. You're on a cold, damp floor. These Roman prisons were generally cold, dark, damp. They were unsanitary. There was no place to go to the bathroom except right there in the place they were holding you. There may have been critters in there. This is a miserable, miserable place to be. So when you think about it, it's rather remarkable that Paul and Silas' response is twofold. The first is that we see him praying. That doesn't shock me necessarily. I think if any one of us were in that particular circumstance, we would be praying to. Probably crying out to the Lord. Both Paul and Peter kind of address the idea of how to respond to these things. We'll get to that in just a second here, but we see a very similar response by the apostles in Acts chapter 5. Why don't you just flip over there with me real quick. Acts chapter 5. Just look down at verses 40 and 41. The apostles had been flogged after preaching the gospel. And we see their response in verses 40 and 41 of Acts chapter 5. They took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, and look at this, rejoicing 
that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. That is a radical thing. After being beaten, flogged, as they walk out the door, it says they're rejoicing because they were considered worthy to suffer for Christ's name. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He's talking about the Colossians there. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. We spent some time going through this when we were quarantined at home. Had our services online. We went through First and Second Peter. You may remember these things, but First Peter chapter one. Look at verses six through nine. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Jump over to chapter 4 now. Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but... To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's a pretty tall order, isn't it? So we find here, as we go back to Acts chapter 16, we find Paul and Silas here in the prison. It basically says that they're, verse 25, singing hymns of praise to God. It says that they're praying. And they're doing this so loudly that the other prisoners can actually hear them and are listening to them. Pretty remarkable. I'll be real frank, I don't know that I've got it in me. I've never had to face what they faced. But here they are praying and rejoicing, singing praise to the Father and doing it loud enough so that others can hear them. I've shared before my testimony of coming to Christ and one of the things that spoke to me, one of the things that convinced me to listen to the guy that had been chasing me around for six months and wanting to share the gospel was when I saw him come back from some tests that he had to take at the end of the school year or middle of the semester, actually. Um, he had these tests. He wanted to be a school teacher, and there were these tests Wisconsin did at the time. I don't know enough about them. Um, he had to pass the test to become a teacher. And so he was a fifth-year senior. He had been chasing me around with the gospel. He was a Christian man, very outspoken. I kept pushing him away. But I got to know him. He had befriended me and had been teaching me to play guitar. Um, but I still, even then, would not listen to him when he would talk about Jesus. Whenever he would bring it up, I would just say, I'm not interested in that Jesus stuff. And I was Catholic. I'd been praying myself. I was depressed. I was walking out late nights, praying to God to help me because I was depressed. 
And here he's trying to answer that through Bob, and I'm not listening. But it all changed one day when Bob came back from from classes one day where I knew he had these tests and I knew that he was stressed out about it. I knew that he was concerned because he sort of looked at his future and said, if I don't pass this, I won't get to be a teacher. And so I was in my own dorm room and I was expecting him to come back and I was anxious to find out how he did. And I remember him walking by and as he walked by, I just kind of shouted out. He didn't poke his head in. So I shouted out. I said, hey, hey, how'd they go? And he went, not well, not well. And he just kept walking. I went, oh, not good. So I kind of decided, you know, I sat in my room for another few minutes and I thought to myself, I'll go down and talk to him. Get more information, right? Well, as I walked into the hallway, I could hear he was playing his guitar and singing. And so as I walked down to his room, the door was wide open. He's standing there in his tidy whities only his tidy whities and his acoustic guitar, and he is strumming like crazy and singing praise songs. And I remember standing in his doorway, not knowing if I should just be embarrassed that he was standing in his underwear, or more shocked that he was responding this way when he had potentially failed his exams. So he saw me there, he put his guitar down and fortunately got dressed. And I looked at him, I said, I don't get this. You know, you may have just, you told me you didn't do well, I'm assuming that means you think you might have failed. And he's like, I don't know, he said, I don't think I did well at all. He said, I really think I may not have done well. I said, then why are you in here with a smile on your face, jamming away on your guitar and singing these praise songs? And it was at that moment that I was willing to listen. And so I asked him, I said, you've been wanting to talk to me about Jesus. Why don't you talk to me about Jesus? It was seeing him rejoice and praise the Lord at this difficult time and seeing how he responded that convinced me there must be something about this life with Christ. And because I had been depressed and miserable and lonely, I wanted that. What's the takeaway from this as we look at Paul and Silas here? It's this. We can rejoice when we suffer because we are serving Christ and our rewards are heavenly and eternal. They're not earthly and temporal. And I'm sure that's what Paul and Silas were thinking about. They were thinking about, we are here now suffering because we have been given the privilege and the honor of preaching the gospel and that's what's got us here. Sometimes our good deeds and our good behavior as Christians get us praise from the world, believe it or not. In fact, we've seen that in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 talks about how people were looking at these Christians and saying, wow, look at those Christians. There was something about them that was very attractive. And so sometimes our good deeds as Christians earn us favor. I think about how so much of our Christian heritage here in the United States, I mean, our schools were started by churches. Our hospitals were started by churches. You've got Mount Carmel. You've got Grant Riverside. You know, it's a Methodist hospital. That's what the church did. And there was a time where the church was looked at favorably. Being a pastor was considered to be one of the most admired careers that existed. And so sometimes, when we do good things as Christians, the reward we get back is praise and honor from those around us. I still, at times... Um, through work, the way that I behave, I, I know that others look at me a certain way and my faith in Christ is reflected in a way that they respect me. That's the way it is sometimes. 
However, just as often, maybe even more so now, our good deeds as Christians are rewarded with ridicule, disdain, rejection, persecution. In other words, no good deed goes unpunished. Think about the coach that loses his job simply for setting an example by praying with his athletes or even praying by himself off to the side and being told, you can't even do that because you cannot as a coach be seen praying in front of students. So he loses his job. Think about the teacher who's disciplined for answering a student's curiosity even when the student brings it up. So she shares her faith or she leaves a Bible sit out on her desktop and is told, you can't do that. Is threatened, loses her job. Or what about the college student who's mocked or ridiculed by the professor simply for expressing biblical values in class? Or the student who's not permitted to write a paper when they're told, write a paper on something that's important to you, and then told, you can't write about Christ, you can't write about the Bible, you can't write about religious things, though. And so the student is threatened with a failing grade or whatever. Or what about the Bible counselor who has a desperate student come to him who's struggling with homosexuality or other things, and the state says, you can't explain to him that that behavior is wrong, or you can't even help him or her when she wants out of that. No good deed goes unpunished, it seems, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. So how are we to respond? Paul and Silas responded by praying, but then also praising the Lord for being considered worthy enough to suffer just like their Savior did. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all who loved his appearing. That's our hope. That's our reward. So like I said, sometimes we may be lucky enough to be rewarded in a positive way for our faith here, but oftentimes expressions of faith in Christ doing good deeds are not going to be met that way by the world. And this is a perfect example of Paul and Silas. This woman was obviously tormented. They do a good thing. And look at what happens. go on, and we're going to see, however, how God will actually use this episode for good, and that was the second idiom I mentioned, that God is able to take anything and use it for good, and he does that here. God uses Paul and Silas' imprisonment for good. He ultimately uses it to save a jailer and his entire family. Look at um, verse 26. Verse 26, it says, Suddenly... There came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfashioned. We've seen this before. Acts chapter 5, the Lord sent his angel to rescue the apostles from the prison. 
He did the same thing for Peter in Acts chapter 12, sends an angel to rescue Peter from prison. This time, however, pardon the pun here, but God shakes things up a little bit. Get that? I hate puns. But he shakes things up a little bit. He uses a supernatural earthquake here to shake the foundations of the prison, which breaks the doors open. But it not only does that, it actually breaks the shackles that all the prisoners are shackled with. But nobody escapes. And the reason nobody escapes is because the Lord has different a different purpose and plan for this particular supernatural event. When the jailer wakes up, He sees that the prison doors are open and immediately he contemplates and apparently plans here to off himself, commit suicide. Look at verse 27. It says, When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, Roman guards were held accountable for their prisoners and they faced harsh penalties, often death if those prisoners Escaped. Go back to Acts chapter 12, verse 19. Acts chapter 12, verse 19. After Peter was miraculously delivered from prison, we'll start at verse 18. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have come of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. That was what prisoners or prison guards often faced. They were responsible for their prisoners. And if the prisoners escaped, the penalties were severe. Oftentimes they were executed. And so rather than wait to be executed, it was actually considered within the Roman corps to commit suicide was more reasonable, it was more honorable, and it was more praiseworthy. And so that's exactly what this prison guard does here. When he sees the prison doors open, he makes a logical conclusion, which is, well, they all would have left, because what prisoner in his right mind would stay in the cell when everything had shaken loose? He can now walk out the doors and disappear into the dark of night. So he doesn't even bother to look. He just knows they're gone, and he draws his sword, because again, it was considered more honorable and praiseworthy to take your own life when you have failed this miserably. Fortunately for the jailer's sake, however, Paul intervened. He not only saves his physical life, but ultimately his eternal life. Look at verse 28. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. It's not clear how Paul knew he was probably in the inner part of the prison. And if you saw the pictures that I had thought about bringing this morning, Paul could not have seen where this guard was. Maybe the Lord revealed it to him. Supernaturally, don't know. But Paul knows. He may have simply known that this is what guards do. And so he immediately cries out and he says, Don't do it! We're all, we're all still here! In response, the jailer grabs some lights, it says, rushes in, He's obviously shocked by what he sees. Look at his response, verses 29 through 30. And he called for lights, and he rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He's trembling with fear. Earthquakes are actually fairly common in this area. This is in Philippi. Earthquakes were common. 
But it's pretty clear that this was no normal earthquake because earthquakes normally didn't, they, they could knock the doors enough to maybe knock a door off a hinge, but for all the doors in the prison to be open and the shackles to now be off of these prison guards, he knew this was no normal earthquake. He recognized that what happened must have been a divine act. I would suspect that part of it is he may have been listening and hearing what Paul and Silas were singing. He knows why they were in jail because the text tells us he was given instructions. So he knows these two have been preaching the gospel. He's a smart man. These two guys show up. They're preaching the gospel. People are getting saved. They probably probably knew that this woman had been healed of this demon. This miraculous event happens at night, just at the time they happen to be singing and praising out loud as everybody's listening. He attributes it, most likely, to a divine act of some kind, so he falls down at Peter and Silas's feet. It means he recognized that this was related to them somehow. And he asks, what do I have to do to be saved? It's not really clear why he was prompted to that, but I suspect it's because maybe he heard what they were singing. We don't get any impression that Paul had the opportunity to share the gospel with them beforehand and he had just thought about it for a while. Likely that their witness of singing and praising the Lord the way they did was enough to convince him that what they had was something he needed. And think about this for a moment. Guards were pay, paid fairly well. They, they weren't, you know, like our armored truck drivers today that <laughs> seem to not make a whole lot. They were paid pretty decently. Middle income, you might say, at least. And here this man is with a steady job, and he's looking at these two prisoners in this disgusting prison, cold, darn, damp, who had been arrested. And he's crying out to them, looking for their help, because they had something that he needed. Remember when God says that he uses the foolish things? to mock and to ridicule the wise. I remember this one time, we had this gentleman in our neighborhood, and he was kind of one of those kids in school that was well-known, very popular, but maybe not for all the right reasons. He's kind of rowdy, a um, bit of a drunk, drug user, you know. He was still just a big kid. We'd go down to the pool, and he would be the one making all the loud Noises with his armpit, you know what I'm talking about, you know, and stuff. You know, and this is a grown man with kids, you know, and, um, and and I had different times to kind of just, you know, chat with him here and there, but never much from a spiritual perspective. And I remember this one day I was in my garage and I was building something. I think I might have been building one of the kids. I made these dollhouses for the kids. And I think I might have been building that. And he came walking down one day, just walking up the driveway, and he walked into the garage, and I said, well, hey, how you doing? He said, good. And he just kind of looked a little nervous, and he's kind of looking around and stuff, and it's like, a little awkward, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, so, um, what, do you, what do you need, Craig? And he's like, um, you need to tell me something. Um, okay, what do I need to tell you? Well, you there's something you got to tell me. He fidgeted a little bit, looked around, looked a little nervous. I'm like, what do I need to tell you, Craig? He's like, you need to tell me about Jesus. 
rather interesting. <laughs> he had seen something. Now, I was able to talk to him about Jesus. He didn't respond, um, didn't get down on his knees and pray. Um, but I got a great opportunity to just be real bold with him. Could tell him, all right, you're the one telling me that I need to tell you about Jesus. So if I offend you, <laughs> it's all on you, buddy. But I was able to tell him how much he needed Christ. Again, I don't know what he ever did with that. I don't get the impression he ever committed his life to Christ. But it's much the same with this jailer looking at Paul and Silas. You need to tell me something. You need to tell me what I need to do to be saved. So we see that God used Paul and Silas' imprisonment here for good. Not just for the jailer, but for his entire household. Look at verses 31 through 34. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus... And you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and his household. And he brought them into the house and he set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Wow, what a turn of events. I can imagine Paul and Silas as this guy's cleaning out their wounds, they're probably wincing a little bit. But I imagine the smile on their faces, the joy they felt in their heart of thinking, hmm, interesting how God works. We got punished for a good deed. Look at what God does with it. What's our takeaway from this? Well, obviously it's simple. God can use any situation for good, even the worst of the worst of the worst. When Joseph was tossed into a pit by his brothers sold into slavery, sent over to Egypt. Did God use that for good? Yeah. Joseph was able to save, ultimately, through the work of God, millions and millions of Egyptians. Maybe not eternally, but at least physically, because Joseph, by doing what he did to prepare for the famine, saved not just Egyptians, but his own family, and people from outside of Egypt that would travel to Egypt to get food. God used that to save many at that time from the famine. It's also the establishment of Israel, ultimately, in the end. He could have been angry, he could have been bitter at his brothers, but instead he proclaimed that God had used his suffering for good. Listen to what he said to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Joseph recognized his situation and his circumstance. He knew that others had meant evil from it, but that God would ultimately use it for good and did. After cataloging all the things that he suffered as a result of his service to Christ, the Apostle Paul claimed that he was well content with them because God's power was made strong in his weakness. It comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul said he was well content with the pain and the suffering and the things, the evil that was plotted against him for doing the good that he did. He was going out telling people how to be saved. It was a good thing. And yet look at how he was rewarded. We've already read through the catalog of things back in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, the number of times he was beaten, shipwrecked, left for dead. And yet Paul says, I'm well content because I know God uses these things for good. So if God can use 
things like what Paul suffered and Silas here, Joseph. He can certainly use any one of our circumstances, no matter how bad, for his good, which makes me then reflect on what we see happening in our world around us today. Many of us are discouraged by what we see. We're frustrated. We're angry. We're upset. Christians are being treated like second-class citizens more and more and more in this great country. All because of our faith in Christ. When we speak out against the evils and things that happen in our world around us, it's not just because we're opposed to those things. We know they harm people. And look at how we're rewarded. God will use it for good. We have to believe that, and we know he will. God will use it for good because that's what he does. And we have to keep that in mind. Our attitude ought to be much like the Apostle Paul and Silas. We ought to be able to not just pray, but we should also be willing and able to express joy and praise that we are suffering for Christ. I know that's hard for us because we don't want to. We're not used to that here. We've had it really easy. It's easy to praise God and to rejoice when things are going well. But when we're sitting in a prison cell with our legs shackled in wooden blocks on a cold, damp floor after being beaten and bloodied, it's hard for us to say, I'm well content. You will use this for good. But we know he will. We know he will. Let's move on to the last part. Chickens now come home to roost. City officials here get confronted for their unlawful actions. How many of you know what kudzu is? Dave does. Amy and I and the kids were driving out to the Outer Banks years ago, and there was a truck that was carrying cattle that had overturned on the highway, and a bunch of cows got loose, and it completely shut down the highway. And so they had to direct us onto this little, tiny, narrow, single-lane road off the interstate that went through the densest forest you can imagine. And as we started getting onto that road and we got in there, I had seen something I had never seen in my life. The only way to describe it is, you remember those velvet paintings of Elvis, you know? (laughs) This looked like a velvet covering from one of those paintings over everything. It it looked like somebody had taken this blanket of green velvet and draped it over everything, the trees, the shrubs, the ground. The only part that wasn't completely covered was this narrow little single-lane road that we were on. And we were maybe going, what, maybe 10, 15 miles an hour max? And it was gorgeous. Again, it looked like this felt rug or drapes that were over this or or whatever, like a velvet thing. I had no idea what it was, but it covered everything. Well, come to find out, it was kudzu. Kudzu was this ornamental plant that they brought in from Japan back in the 30s, um, 30s, 40s, 50s, that time period, because they thought it would be good for soil um, erosion, to protect, protect areas that had been eroding, and so they brought it in. They also brought it in because it was pretty. But what they didn't realize was that this stuff grows at something like a foot to two feet a day. It's And it takes over everything. I bring this up simply because at the time they thought it was a really good thing that they bring this in and do what they did. They didn't realize the chickens would come home to roost. 
At some point, they'd be going, uh-oh, what did we do? How many of you get the little tiny, what look like ladybugs in your house or around your properties now? Have anybody else experienced that? There were these little tiny beetles. They're not actually ladybugs. They're beetles that were brought in for pest control because they eat another kind of pest. And they have exploded. And now they don't know what to do with them. This happens fairly frequently where... We do something we think is going to be great and then there's consequences. We don't know the consequences down the road and that's exactly what happened with kudzu. I've had it in my backyard and I had to strip all down. The stuff is hard to kill and again, it just grows like crazy. It's take, they call it the weed that has consumed the South because it's taken over huge portions of the southern part of the United States. Kills everything. Consequences. Sometimes actions have consequences that we're not really aware of, and we see that kind of here. Look at verses 35 through 40. Now when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They've beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now they're sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. And so what Paul basically does is he says, Are you kidding me? These guys just beat us into a bloody pulp. And they did it privately for something that we didn't deserve. They violated Roman law. And now they just want to secretly send us away? No way, I am not going to let that happen. I'm going to call these people out. Look at what happens, verse 38. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. In other words, all that Paul had said. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. So they went out of prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren there, they encouraged them. And then they finally departed. What happens here? If you remember, Paul and Silas were never tried. They never went through a proper trial of any kind. The authorities simply ordered them to be beaten and thrown into prison. It was a violation of Roman law. Had the authorities spent just a little bit of time investigating, talking, they would have discovered that Paul and Silas were Romans, and in Roman law, it was illegal to cane and beat Roman citizens. Oops. They screwed up. The problem was that Roman law made what they did illegal and the Romans never took kindly to those who violated their laws. To make matters worse, they did it all privately and in secret, which the Romans didn't take kindly to either. So Paul, knowing all of this, knows that his rights as a Roman citizen had been violated, calls them out. Notice that when word gets back to them, it says that they are afraid. They should have been afraid. The Romans were not kind to such things. They come and it even says they begin to appeal. That's interesting. Tables have turned here a little bit. Now these big, powerful authority figures are basically appealing to these two criminals. It says that they began to beg them, just leave the city. Why do they want them to leave the city? It was initially because they just didn't want them in the city. Now they want them out of the city because they don't want word of this getting back to Rome. 
If they can just go, just leave. Just quietly go away. We'll leave you alone. If you just leave us alone, go away. They're thinking maybe their deeds won't be discovered by Rome. Maybe, maybe not. My, how the tables have turned here. Now we see here that Paul doesn't press the matter too far, and we'll talk about that in a second, but what's our takeaway on all this? I'm going to say it just for what it is. It's okay to pursue our religious rights as citizens. It's okay for us to hold government officials accountable for when they violate the rights that we have. Now, notice I said religious rights. I'm not saying we don't have the right to fight for our civil liberties and that that are guaranteed by the Constitution, but specifically when it comes to our religious rights, because in many respects, that's an opportunity for witness. I believe that one of the reasons why Paul and Silas here didn't want to just disappear was because it gave them one more opportunity in front of these people that had beaten and bruised them, and they would have known exactly why. But you notice that Paul and Silas don't push this issue, don't demand they be reported to Roman officials, don't push the matter any further. They were satisfied just simply bringing these Roman or these officials before them, watching them in some respects beg and plead and appeal. But you notice they don't immediately leave the city. They go back to Lydia's for a little bit here, and then they leave. So as I look at this, I think to myself, how might we respond in the same way they do? I think it's important for us to stand up for the rights that we have been given by our Constitution, but specifically when it comes to our religious rights, because that's why we were left here. That's why we were left here. So anytime our government says, you can't preach the gospel, or you can't exercise your religious faith, I think it is important for us to stand up for those things because it's a form of witness. And we have every right to do do so. And Paul took advantage of being a Roman, much like we should take advantage of being a part of a constitutional republic. It's okay for us to fight for those rights, and we should. But notice that with Paul and Silas, it was likely about one thing, the gospel, because what they do here is they don't press this matter, meaning they don't then go out and say, no, 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 no. Somebody notify Rome. Get them here. We want you tried as well. We want you to lose your jobs. Instead, it's enough for them to face their accusers and then get back to preaching the gospel, which is what they did. I think that's really what our heart ought to be as well. It shouldn't be revenge. It should be maintaining our ability to continue to preach the gospel here in the United States. And so we have every right to do that. I think it's a form of witness in many respects. And again, I believe that's why Paul and Barnabas didn't just leave the city. Maybe these officials might think twice the next time. Maybe not. But Paul wasn't afraid to exercise the right that he had as a Roman citizen. But again, he exercised it in the context of preaching the gospel, which I think is the most critical here. So I pray that that would be our attitude as well, especially as we face what we're facing today as we lose some of the rights and privileges that we've been given, may we always think in terms of the gospel and how that might affect the gospel. Some have compromised by changing their message, by softening a little bit. Well, we won't talk about those issues, because if we don't talk about those issues, they'll leave us alone, we can still talk about Jesus. So they compromise. That's not appropriate either. 
We know that Paul here in Acts chapter 16 didn't all of a sudden say, well, okay, when we go to the next city, we won't talk about Jesus. And they just went about their business, took advantage of the rights that they had, knowing full well that they might get pushed back and get further prosecution and persecution. But it's okay for us to do this. It's okay for us to pursue those things. And we should, because again, it's a form of witness for us. So, I'm going to go ahead and kind of wrap it up with that, but it's an interesting passage in that we see all these dynamics taking place here with Paul and Silas, and there's a lot there for us to walk away with because, again, our attitudes ought to be very similar. We won't always be rewarded in a good way for what we do. We may face repercussion because of being Christians and preaching the gospel. However, when that happens, we ought to be able to rejoice knowing full well that God will use it for good. He always does. And then lastly, it's okay for us to stand up for our rights. It's okay for us to pursue that, especially with the attitude that if it permits us to continue preaching the gospel, that's a good thing. I hate the concept of having to, you know, do certain things with this COVID stuff that I don't necessarily think are important or valid or even useful, but sometimes I think I don't want to fight that battle because for me it's not necessarily about the gospel. But when it becomes about the gospel, I want to make some noise. I want to make a stink doesn't mean we can't speak up on other things. It's just, I think the attitude always needs to be, let's make this about the gospel. Let's make it about Christ. Amen?